0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Neufeld. Today we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, verses 7 to 22, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Israel Under Oppression.
1: You never know when you're round a quarter, and in consequence, the world will be altered. You know, it's an illusion to think that all things will remain as they are. I mean, sudden changes may enrich our lives or they might devastate us, such as, you know, the nature of life. And now, of course, God never changes and his mercies never fail. And if we have the eyes to see it, what God does when he leads us into the valley of suffering may not be readily apparent to us. But we know the biblical account and we know that in the end, God will work out all things for his glory and the eternal good of his people. When the book of Genesis ends, Israel settled in Egypt, the very best part of the land. Joseph is the prime minister, answerable only to Pharaoh, and God has sustained his people. But as Exodus begins, we round one of those corners that take the nation from prosperity to tragedy. But God knows what he's doing. So let's begin to read today's passage. I'm going to begin in Exodus 1 verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. You know, one translator of this passage says we can literally read the Hebrew text as saying, as for the Israelites, they grew, they were fruitful, they swarmed, they increased, they got powerful more and more, and the land was filled with them. And from the perspective of Israel, that was good. This is, in many ways, the command that God gave to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. See, I think it necessary to point out that the land that's spoken of here most likely refers not to the land of Egypt, most likely it refers to the land of Goshen, which is a part of Egypt, the fertile mouth of the Nile, a land that they now fill. And with a large population comes a vibrant culture, comes a robust economy, and comes a greater understanding of the plans that God had for them. And then suddenly things change. Exodus 1, 8-10. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, there's been a great deal of interest as to who this new king that did not know Joseph was. We do notice that in most cases, not in all, but most, when mentioning the ruler of Egypt, Moses will use the word Pharaoh, but here he simply chooses the word King, and some have thought that might be a clue. And I say that because Egyptologists have told us, from around 1640 BC until around 1530 BC, Egypt was invaded and conquered by an Asiatic people group known as the Hyksos. Some suggest that they conquered Egypt because they had superior military technology. Some suggest they had chariots. So let's do a chronology here. Exodus 12:41 says that Israel was in Egypt for 430 years. And since, we've already established that the date of the Exodus is 1446 BC. So then, oh, we can say that Jacob and his family, they would have come to Egypt in the year 1876 BC. That would mean, that Israel was living in Egypt when Egypt was conquered by the Hyksos. And that fact has led many to wonder whether the king who didn't know Joseph, the one who is not referred to as Pharaoh but a king, was in fact not an Egyptian at all, but a Hyksos king. And if that's so, we have to then assume that for a period of 236 years, Israel grew in numbers and populated most of the Goshen region through a benign policy of the pharaohs of Egypt. But if it was a Hyksos ruler that Moses mentioned, why would the Hyksos suddenly enslave Israel? I mean, why wouldn't they enslave the Egyptians? Of course, all this is conjecture. But the outside historical events do fit this picture quite well. First of all, this king is worried that the Israelites presented a real threat. If war breaks out, that is, if the Egyptians mount a comeback, in that case, because of the long history of harmonious relationships with Israel and Egypt, if war breaks out, Israel is clear as to where their loyalties lie, and so I don't think the story of slavery is about Egypt being overwhelmed by Israel's population rate, but rather it's the result of foreigners who want to rule Egypt and think it's best to divide Israel from Egypt. Now, in order to break Israel's power, reducing them from a wealthy landowner class, growing in prosperity, now to slaves stripped of all land and power, with no access to weapons of war, that's the way the Hyksos ruled. Now, if that scenario is correct, it then seems to me that when the Egyptians eventually mounted a successful revolution and expelled the Hyksos after 110 years, and then the 18th dynasty of Egypt simply carried on the policy of enslavement, because they recognized how advantageous that policy would be for them. So when everyone else in Egypt got liberated, Israel didn't. They had suddenly rounded a corner in which they went from a wealthy, prosperous, growing subculture in Egypt to slaves devoid of all rights. The world had changed. So we keep reading, Exodus 1, 11 to 13. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And here I have to assume we come now to the period in Egypt's history, the time after the Hyksos, the time when Egypt suddenly roars back to power, fortifies their country to prevent future invasions, adapts the military technology from the Hyksos, gets chariots, begins to conquer Near Eastern countries, ever-expanding their influence and increasing their wealth. That would have been a time of rapid expansion for Egypt, a time when the economy was growing. And as it grew, they saw possibilities they had not seen before. You know, some of you may have been to the Valley of the Kings along the Nile, in which the pharaohs from that era were buried. I make mention of that so we won't think the Israelites were building pyramids. They weren't. Those pyramids were already old when they were there. But Israel saw none of the prosperity of the New Golden Age. The original identity wasn't restored. No one thought of them as Abraham's offspring. Rather, they were the permanent slave caste who, as we're going to learn, worked with mud bricks. Mud bricks were used as ramps to drag big ornate stones into buildings. That is, the craftsmen worked on the grand stones. The slaves built ramps, unskilled labor, those only worthy of the strength of their backs. Now, our text says they built the store cities of Python and Ramesses. Now, those cities would have been near the land of Goshen. They were cities to store treasures, places where valuable assets were kept. No doubt, they were military cities strategically placed to fortify the land. And since that would have been a massive project, abundant slave labor would have been helpful. Now, here we get to the next part of the passage. We might have thought that because of this turn of events, their population would have gone down, but it didn't. As is often true of disadvantaged populations, people have big families. It's among the wealthy that the families are smaller, and so a wealthy Egypt, smaller families, a slave class Israel, continuing to grow rapidly. And this phenomenon wasn't lost on the population of Egypt. One has to imagine that after the period of the Hyksos, the suspicion of foreigners Not previously felt, that became a national obsession. And as Israel's population continued to grow, the Egyptians are feeling dread. What happens if we lose our country again? Or think of it, these slaves living among us. And so the treatment of the slaves goes from servitude to ruthless servitude. That is, there's a sense of anger and vengeance for these foreigners who live among us. Dread, and yet economic advantages come from keeping slaves. Again, let's return to the theme of suddenly rounding a corner and the world no longer looks the same. Israel has gone from being, you know, the honored descendants of Joseph, you know, the man who saved Egypt's economy, honored among the Egyptians, as well as from the threat of mass starvation to Israel now, the hated foreign slaves who were needed for the new economy, but also who were despised because of their race. Ah, That's an old story. So we look at verse 14. And made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And the key word here is the word bitter. It means that the good in life, the enjoyment that comes in life, the value of being wanted, all of that is just taken away. there was very little laughter, very few celebrations, and its place, hardship, a hardship that just never ceases, and there is no prospect of change. We need to capture the idea that this state of affairs was intolerable. The fascinating thing here, at least from our vantage point, is that this situation did not stop the population growth. It may well have been that the only consolation they had left was in the arms of husband and wife with each other. But all the while, as the population grew and the hardship increased, the dread of Egypt kept growing as well.
0: Do you ever find yourself wanting to spend time with the Lord in His Word, but don't seem to find the time? Well, here at Back to the Bible Canada, we understand some days are hectic and challenging and that's why we would encourage you to check out our Back to the Bible Canada Bible Minute podcast. Each episode contains a one minute audio Bible teaching message from Dr. John Newfeld. with new episodes Monday through Friday. These are perfect for those moments when you're seeking spiritual encouragement, but time is short. So you can download the Bible Minute podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit backtothebible.ca slash apps. For more information, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And thank you to all those who make Bible teaching resources like the Bible Minute available through your gracious gifts.
1: In the house of Pharaoh, there's a plan to deal with a slave nation that will not decrease in size. Simply cull the population, same way that people cull animal populations. Exodus 1:15-16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, "When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him; but if it is a daughter, she shall live." As we're going to see, these two midwives are the story of courageous resistance against evil. That's probably the reason we have Moses telling us their names. You know, Moses doesn't name Pharaoh. As far as he was concerned, we can forget his name, but we must not forget these two women. It's very much like Mary, who anointed Jesus' feet in Matthew 26, 13, telling us that wherever the gospel is preached, what Mary had done will also be told so that her act of love for our Lord might never be forgotten. And in the same way, wherever the story of the Exodus is told, these two women who risked their lives to save Hebrew babies might not be forgotten. Their names, Shifra, Puah. Now, given that the population of Israel was quite large at this time, we have to imagine that there were more midwives than these two, but we have to assume that these were the senior midwives who functioned as leaders or as administrators over many others. At any rate, Here at the outset, the midwives are being told they must serve as executioners. We aren't told how they're going to kill them and what would be the reaction in the homes. I mean, would they simply quickly strangle the children and tell the mother that child died at childbirth? I mean, how are they gonna do this? Nonetheless, however it was supposed to be done, those orders came from Pharaoh. Why the boys and not the girls? Well, I think the answer is that the men, even though they would have constituted a good part of the workforce, they could also have ended up being the fighters against Egypt if their numbers grew. Make them a nation with few men, that'll solve problems. I need to interject here that babies are often victims, whether it's the practice of, of abortion today or in the Roman world of exposing unwanted children, the war on infants and the war on the unborn, that's a part of the satanic hatred of the human race. So let's keep reading. Exodus one17 to 21. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Well, notice here an important phrase. It says, because the midwives feared God. So let's examine that. So what does it mean? You know, at the start, we would have to say it means they believed in God. And that's fascinating, because the text doesn't say they believed in the gods, meaning the many gods of Egypt. Rather, they believed in God, meaning they believed in one God. Well how did they come to that? Well the answer seems to be from the Israelites. They had heard of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that there was but one God who is the creator of all things. And that scenario also well that helps us understand how come it is that at the time of the actual Exodus, why in Exodus 12:37 to 38 it says and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock both of flocks and herds. And the question is often asked, who was this mixed multitude? Were they other Egyptian slaves? Were they everyday Egyptians? Was there any royalty among them? Well, we don't know the answer to any of that, but it seems very likely that the testimony of Israel in Egypt led many Egyptians to believe that the one God of Israel is the true God. And so it seems likely that these two midwives, Shifra and Puah, were among those who were not Israelites, but they had come to believe in the God of Israel. Well, what does it mean in the context of Exodus to fear God? So let's go ahead to Exodus eighteen twenty-one, where Moses is looking for leaders. And here's what he's to do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. That is, people who fear God, they're the ones who do what's right. People who fear God, as in the case of these two women have a value for human life. It's still the same thing today. To fear God is to be pro-life. It's to recognize that all human beings are made in the image of God. To take innocent life is an affront to the God who made them. To fear God is the most important thing that can be said about anyone. It means that one recognizes that God is God and that it's he and he alone that is worthy of honor and respect and obedience. And so when the king's order is given, The women knew which orders take priority and which orders they are to circumvent. They fear God. It's important for the reader of this text to understand that this was the work of God. I mean, one might ask, God, where were you when the Egyptians were brutalizing the Israelites? Here's the answer. He appointed two women who would obey God and not the king. Now, before we move on, let's get at a question that's often raised. Our text said, first, that God dealt well with the midwives, and second, that he gave them families of their own. And yet, what is it that the midwives actually did? There are some who will say, well, they lied, that's what they did. And how can God bless lying? And if he blesses lying here, might he also bless it somewhere else? And some others argue that ethics are then situational. Well Douglas Stewart argues that in order to understand this, we have to understand that it all comes down to how we translate the Hebrew word vigorous. Remember, they said the Hebrew women are more vigorous than the Egyptian women. And Stewart says that the word would better be translated as more active or even as more involved in the matter of childbirth. That is, they were more involved in the actual birth of their own children rather than allowing for medical professionals to do it all for them. In other words, the midwives aren't saying that Hebrew women are genetically different. Rather, they're saying there's a cultural difference. The way Israelite women have children is different, and it's the rich classes that Pharaoh would have been familiar with. They would have taken a minimal role in delivering their own children, and that Hebrew women preferred home births that minimalized the role of the midwife. Now let's assume that the midwives also colluded with the Israelite women, so that the women were told of Pharaoh's plan to kill her boys, and so the role of the midwives, which was already at a minimum level, was reduced even further. They simply weren't ever called after Pharaoh gave the order. And hence, it may well be that the midwives told Pharaoh the truth. They just didn't tell him the whole truth. And they told Pharaoh, you know, we're not often there when the children are born. They just didn't tell them as things now stand. We've decided never to be there when they're born. And so it's almost likely the case that the midwives found a way to circumvent Pharaoh's orders while at the same time not letting Pharaoh know they had no intention to do what he commanded them to do. It seems also from reading this that the midwives normally did not have children. Now, were they, you know, in an order that didn't get married? Well, that's possible. We just don't know. But it seems that God intervened and blessed these women. So we come now to the last verse of chapter 1. It's Exodus one twenty-two. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. You see, Pharaoh's not so quickly dissuaded. What started gradually enslaving this people, making their lives bitter, spreading stories of hatred and fear against them, now becomes a national policy genocide against all Israelite boys. It's a command now that doesn't go to the midwives, it goes to all Egyptians. When you see a Hebrew boy, you must drown him in the Nile. You know, during the American slavery experience, it was made a law in the South that if you didn't assist, in capturing runaway slaves, you could be subject to prosecution and imprisonment. In other words, the entire population was told you have to capture slaves. That's what's being done in Egypt. You must kill Israelite babies. It's interesting that later on, God will turn this order back on the heads of the Egyptians, as every one of their firstborn sons will die. Galatians 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that Will he also reap? Listen, God remembers. It's an important lesson that we remember. God did not disappear from this scene. God's people may go through sorrow, hardship, terrible injustice, even persecution. There is a God who sees, and a God who takes all these things into account, and in the end, he will balance the books. But that brings me back to this place in the account. Israel has turned a corner, and now things are unlike they have been before. They've gone from favored nation status to a slave nation. But God watches over them. And God has a wonderful plan for that nation. Take note, take it to heart. Things may be very bad now. God has not forgotten you.
0: John, thanks for your message. You know, I noticed when you were speaking that, you know, the Israelites' life has twists and turns. Much like ours, and and some we rejoice in, uh, some not so much. But has God abandoned us in the tough times?
1: I know that Exodus, uh, you know, face has us face this whole idea that uh, there are indeed times of suffering that will come, and if we pay attention to the entire book, uh, we're going to find out that God allowed this slavery, this bondage, this suffering, uh, because He had something to say about how salvation had come to the whole world. I mean, eventually what happened in Egypt led to our own salvation. So if we keep that in mind, and if we think, okay, here's one test case where we can see on the immediate short-term perspective, things look very bad, how could God be in this? But now that we have had the time to stand back and say, oh, God had a much better thing involved. So we can be thankful for the suffering of the people of Israel in Egypt because it has told us a great deal about uh, you know, our own lives
0: and our own suffering and our need for salvation, all that kind of stuff. So it's good. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Our society is filled with hustle and noise. Everyone is in a rush to go and do. We always are striving to be productive. And too often we carry this flustered spirit into our faith. But what if God was looking for our presence and not just our productivity? God wants us to know Him intimately. This requires time, time to be still and silent with Him. So, in response, back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld have created a new 30-day devotional entitled Quiet Spaces, Volume 2. This is the next installment of the original Quiet Spaces devotional. This is your opportunity to take a moment in the Word, a quiet space for God in your day. So we want to send you this resource, Quiet Spaces, Volume 2, for free this month by just calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visiting Back to the Bible dot C-A